0: Let's take a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us by your word, transform us by your word, plant it deep in our souls that we may think it and meditate on it and live by it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen just to refresh your memory where we are in the book of 1 Samuel just to kind of step back here for a minute and then we'll we'll uh, we'll dive back into our passage you know in the book of Samuel we're in the part where we're dealing with the kings and so the people of Israel rejected God because they wanted a king who was like all the nations they wanted a powerful impressive king a king who would not depend on the invisible God? They wanted a king who was like them, who was someone who would live by sight and not by faith. So God gave them what they wanted. Sometimes one of the f- worst punishments that God can give is giving us what we want. And so the people wanted a king like all the nations, so God gave them a king like all the nations, a king who was like them, who lived by sight and not by faith a king who was interested in doing his own will and not the will of God. Saul, the king that God gave them, rebelled as God knew he would. And so as punishment, God declared that he would remove Saul's dynasty. First, that was the first announcement, the first thing that was ordained by God as punishment to Saul, that Saul's dynasty would not continue. And then the second thing that was ordained is that Saul's kingdom would end. Those are two separate things. One, with respect to the dynasty, it's saying, after you, there's no more of your line that's going to be a king. Now remember, Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, and so Messiah was to come through the tribe of Judah. How exactly God would have done that? Would he have allowed... Uh, uh, some sort of line through David and a, and a line, excuse me, a line through Saul and then some sort of line through, through through David and Judah? Maybe, but those are not the facts, so there's no reason to spend a whole bunch of brain damage analyzing things that are not true. So with, the, with respect to dynasty, God, the punishment was that with Saul it would be over. Saul's line would be, in, in terms of having a kingly line would be finished. And then with respect to his kingdom, first thing that was ordained as punishment is your dynasty is done. Second thing that was ordained is your kingdom is finished. I'm going to rip your kingdom from you and give it to another who is better, another who is a man after my own heart. That second one with respect to the kingdom was that Saul would be killed because that's how you stop a kingdom. The only way a king stops being a king is he dies. It's not like a democracy where you kind of vote him out of office. You want to elect him. With respect to kings and royalty, the king's got to die. And so that second punishment from God is that God would kill Saul and end his kingship and would bring another who was better than Saul to use the language of the text, and that other would be David. And so God sent Samuel to anoint David When David was anointed in chapter 16, he was a mere youth. And so God begins the process of training this youth to lead his people, to lead Israel. Initially, God gave David leadership over his father's sheep, leadership over David's, over uh, Jesse's flock. And so as a young shepherd, David faithfully protected the sheep. Today, God will give David a new type of leadership, not over animals, not over sheep, but over men. Because today, this evening, David will be, for the first time, a military officer. But in order to lead, you have to have people who are willing to follow. I mean, that's, that's pretty fundamental. I mean, you see that with Christ, right? The son of David, the nation of Israel was not willing to follow the son of David When the son of David came, when when Christ came, the nation of Israel was not willing to follow him. You don't get much more not willing to follow by killing him, right? That's the first advent. When Christ returns, they will be willing to follow him. And so his leadership will be accepted. What God is doing here with David is creating a fact pattern, creating a scenario so that the people are willing to follow him, so that the people are willing to follow this new king, this new king that Samuel has anointed. And so the first thing that God does with David's public life is something spectacular, something that is unique, where you have a a youth, a teenager, kill this colossus of a man, this giant, kills Goliath. But it wasn't just the killing of Goliath, as if that wasn't spectacular enough. When Goliath falls and David cuts off his head, what immediately happens is the Israelite army charges the Philistine army. They've been frozen in fear for 40 long days as the giant comes from their hill. Remember, each of the armies are on their own hill. The Israelites are on their hill. The Philistines are on their, their hill. The giant comes down in the valley. He, not, he, he mocks the, the, the Israelites 40 days, 39 days David shows up. He's delivering some things for his father to to his brothers. David sees this Philistine who is mocking the armies of the living God. David comes down in the valley, kills the Philistine. And then the Israelite army, who's up on their hill, they charge and they chase the Philistines because the Philistine's champion is dead, headless, on the ground. So they chase them, and they chase them many, many miles to their cities. The Israelites return and they return to all the booty. They return to all the spoil of the war because the Philistines are so terrified that they leave all their stuff in their tents. So it's not just the spectacular victory of the teenager killing the giant. It's also the victory of the entire army of Israel routing the army of the Philistines and getting the spoils of war. David, if I could use a street term, is as popular and I kind of hesitate a little bit on this, but as popular as a rock star, I, I hesitate on that because you know rock stars are, are usually a, a hot mess, <laughs> and, and David is not a hot mess at all. But you get the point. He has this popularity that is intense. Popularity with the troops. Popularity with the people. Popularity with everybody. This is this is how God is raising up his new king, and as we'll see chapter 18 unfold, God is pushing down Saul. He's raising up David, and he's pushing down Saul. Chapter 18 begins with David in King Saul's court, but for context, let me start with with the last couple of verses from chapter 17. Verse 57 of chapter 17 of 1 Samuel reads like this. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Goliath, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. Abner is the, is the head of King Saul's army. Verse 58, Saul said to him, said to David, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. David refers to his father as the servant of the king, in ancient times, as we've studied in the book of John, someone's identity is often described as the son of so-and-so. And so if you're the son of so-and-so, it's a way of saying that you have close relationship with son of so-and-so. David isn't just saying, I'm the son of, Je- of Jesse. I'm the, the biological descendant of Jesse. David is saying, my character, my nature is the same as Jesse. My father Jesse is your servant Saul and so am I. This is a term of respect. This is a term of loyalty from day 1. Day 1 David's relationship with Saul is a relationship of loyalty and respect. The reason for that is because Saul, at least for now, is God's king. And God respects, excuse me, David respects God, is loyal to God. So David is loyal and respectful to God's king. Keep reading in verse 1 of chapter 18. Now it came about when he, David, had finished speaking to Saul that the son of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. We saw last time that, I'll just mention it briefly, we saw last time the the insulting, offensive lie that is proffered, that is put forth with respect to this text that, that, that David and Jonathan had a homosexual relationship. Nothing could be further from the truth. That is entirely, entirely unsupported by the text. And we spent quite a bit of time on that last time, so that, that's all I'll mention with respect to that false teaching. Saul wants David in his court, is what we're seeing here. And he wants David in his court because it's good to have a winner. Everybody loves a winner. I mean, David is a winner of winners. And so when you have a winner in your court, it kind of, it's, it's kind of contagious, right? It, 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 it's good for morale, and the success of David can rub off on other people in the, kings, in, in the court of King Saul. That's part of why the king wants David to be there with him in his household in the court. Jonathan, who is Saul's eldest son, is also there in the court in this moment. And so he's listening to this conversation between David and his father, between David and Saul. He's hearing these events with respect to David's killing of the giant Goliath, and right away, immediately, Jonathan respects David. Immediately there's this bond between these two men. They're bonded together as soldiers, as brothers-in-arms in the army of Israel. But more than that, they're eternal brothers. You've heard that phrase, blood is thicker than water, right? It's a, it's a saying that means family is closer, is more closely knit than strangers. Well, if it's that way with biological family, it's eternally that way with respect to your eternal brothers and sisters in Christ. Jonathan trusts in the Lord just like David, and Jonathan is a believer like David, and so the bond that is between these two men is is a close bond with respect to them being soldiers and and, and brothers in arms in in a military context. But it's even closer because they are eternal brothers with respect to to both being believers in the Lord. Remember, salvation is always the same in all generations. It's always by grace through faith. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way in the New Testament. We believe in the same Lord that Jonathan and David believed in. It's just that Lord has now come in the flesh incarnate, but it's the same Yahweh. And so they are believers, and that unity that they have as being brothers in in the Lord also is what binds them together. As chapter 18 unfolds, God will reveal the contrast between David and Saul. God is going to reveal the contrast between his pick for king and the people's pick for king. Saul will be shown as unstable, jealous, and fearful. David, on the other hand, will be steady as a rock. David will be reliable, steadfast, and successful. Look at verse 3. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. This is an utterly astounding event. Jonathan is the crown prince. Jonathan is the eldest son of the king. When the king ceases to be king, as far as the nation is concerned, Jonathan is the next king. And what the crown prince is doing here is he is making a covenant with a shepherd boy. He's making a covenant that I believe is a unilateral covenant, a one-sided covenant, a covenant of allegiance and loyalty to David, Jonathan is relinquishing his claim to the throne and his behavior evidences this because what he does is he takes the trappings of royalty as the crown prince and he gives them to the shepherd boy. He takes off his royal robe. He takes his royal armor. He takes his royal weaponry and he gives it. He gives it all to David. In effect, he is abdicating his claim to the throne he recognizes that David is the next king. Now, we don't know exactly how Jonathan knew that. Maybe he concludes that because of the great feat that God did through David, where he empowered David to kill the giant. Maybe he heard, maybe Jonathan heard about David having been anointed. We don't know exactly what it is, but these, these events, this activity by the crown prince is unmistakable. It's unmistakable in its abdication of his claim to the throne and to make these events even more interesting. These are not 219 19-year-olds. You know, we saw that when David killed the giant, he's in his late teens, 18, 19, 17, somewhere around there. Jonathan, many scholars believe, is 20 to 30 years older than David. Eugene Merrill, in his great work, A Kingdom of Priests, which is a historical account of Old Testament Israel, estimates that Jonathan is 30 years older than David. And so you get this scene of Jonathan being in his 40s and maybe even his late 40s, where David is in his late teens, for his entire life, Jonathan has been groomed to be the next king. For his entire life, Jonathan has been in training to be the next king, and here he actively and voluntarily relinquishes his claim to the throne and gives it to young David, because Jonathan recognizes God's plan is through David. God's, the future, God's plan of the future of the monarchy is through David, and it's obvious that God is raising up David. Jonathan's activities here, where he essentially abdicates his claim to the throne as the crown prince, sets the tone for the entire chapter. Because the entire chapter is God elevating David, as I say, and God pushing down as punishment, pushing down Saul. In his humility, Jonathan submits to God, and he submits to God's servant, David. Keep reading in verse 5. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and prospered. And Saul set him over the men of war, and it was pleasing in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Everybody loves David. Everybody loves David. Even Saul's inner circle loves David. His servants, the phrase his servants here. They loved him because he prospered. The word prospered is the hifel stem of the Hebrew verb shahal, which is used three times in chapter 18. It means to achieve success or to prosper, but it also means to be wise and insightful. The verb can mean both to be wise and insightful and also to be prosperous. And what the writer of 1 Samuel is doing is he's linking both of those. Prosperity comes from wisdom. Success comes true success. I'm not talking about how the, success, how the world defines success. True success, success in God's eyes, is linked to wisdom in God's eyes. Some people prosper because they know how to play the game. Some people prosper because they know how to, the work, how to work the system. That's how it works in law firms. That's how it works in engineering firms. That's how it works in stores. That's how it works in medical firms. That's how it works in Fortune 500 com- companies. That's how it works all the time. Is Some people know how to work the system, how to play the system, and so they prosper because of that. But the one who truly prospers is the one who has God with him. And the phrase that we're going to see many times with respect to David is that God is with David. God is with those who seek his will. And seeking God's will is an act of wisdom. Refusing to God's will, to do God's will is an act of foolishness. God says in, you remember what, what Samuel said, God speaks through Samuel when Saul disobeyed God. This is a number of chapters back. But when Saul offered the sacrifice, when he shouldn't have offered the sacrifice, what does Samuel call him? He calls him foolish. You have done something foolish. Your actions are foolish because disobedience with respect to God, failing to obey God is an act of foolishness. Where obeying God, submitting to God, is an act of wisdom which brings about success. So some people are successful in the world because they know how to play the system, they know how to work the system, but the one who is truly successful is the one who God is with, and that is the one who seeks God's will, and therefore that one is wise. God said this in chapter 2, verse 30, those who honor me, I will honor this is not complicated. It is not complicated to be blessed by God. It is actually very simple. It's very straightforward. We make it complicated because we are prideful, because I'm stubborn. That's why I make it complicated, because I'm disobedient. I'm trying to offend you, but so are you. That, I mean, that's, that's who we are by nature, human nature. Our sinfulness makes it complicated for us. But it's actually very simple. If we obey God, if we seek God's will, then God is with us. That's an act of wisdom, and then God blesses us. Obedience always precedes blessing, and disobedience always precedes punishment. This is the distinction between these two men, the distinction between the people's king and God's king. This is a great principle for us. If we will seek God's will, which is wisdom on our part, that's an act of wisdom, then God will prosper us, not necessarily the way the world defines prosperity. I'm not saying that God's going to give you that 10,000-square-foot house in the Hamptons. Maybe you don't want to be in New York anyway. I'm saying that God defines prosperity according to his terms. And if we will obey God and seek God's will, then he will prosper us according to his definition of prosperity. Then in the next few verses, we get a flashback to the events of chapter 17, just after God empowers David to kill the giant. Keep reading in verse 6. It happened as they were coming, when David returned from killing the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy and with musical instruments. The women sang as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is a great time of celebration. This is a great time of festivities. For 40 long days, Goliath had been taunting the Israelite Israelite army and they were frozen in fear. But now God has given a great victory. And so in that era, when soldiers returned, the women would come and greet them, especially if it's a victorious return, and so these ladies come out with this great time of dancing and singing and celebration. Their song is poetic. Hebrew poetry, as we studied not that long ago in at the 930 service in the book of Isaiah, Hebrew poetry is usually not rhythm of sound. It's not usually Roses are red, violets are are blue, I love you, that kind of poetry. Usually it's rhythm of thought, repetition of thought, parallelism, you can say. And so in Hebrew poetry, you'd say, say something, and then you say the same thing again, but slightly differently. Or maybe you say it one way, and then you say the opposite in the second line. It's parallelism, Parallelism of thought, either antithetical parallelism—it kind of sounds like a like a contradiction of terms—but either antithetical parallelism, parallelism, or par- parallelism that is repeating the same concept. The point is, what we're seeing in this song is poetry, Hebrew poetry, and it's hyperbole, right? David hasn't killed his tens of thousands; he's killed the giant and whatever other Philistines were there in that particular military engagement in the Valley of Elah, where Goliath was. We get this song of poetry and hyperbole to emphasize the, the great celebration. These women were not disrespecting the king. They weren't disrespecting Saul. They were honoring both Saul and David. It's just they're honoring David more because David's feat is more impressive. No one has killed a giant but David, and no one has routed the Philistines like David has with his great spoils of war that were collected there in the valley of Elah. The point of the song is to celebrate God's victory for Israel, but that's not how the king is going to take it. That's not how Saul takes it. Verse 8, Then Saul became very angry, for this saying displeased him, and he said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, but to me they have dis- ascribed thousands. Now, what more can he have but the kingdom? Saul looked at David with suspicion from that day on. Saul violates the tenth commandment you shall not covet. Saul lusts for that which is not his. God gave this glory to David and Saul lusts and covets after what God has given to David. This is, you might say, approbation lust. Approbation is wanting to be accepted. I want you to accept me. I want you to accept me. I want your approbation. And this is what Saul is doing. He lusts and craves for the approbation of the people and his approbation lust is linked to his power lust the power lust is tied to the kingdom that's why he talks about the kingdom he says well the next thing david's going to take i mean all the people they they're, they're praising david here the women are singing the song for david next thing that's going to happen is he's going to take the kingdom because that's what Saul values Saul doesn't value god Saul values the kingdom he doesn't value the king of the kingdom The giver of the kingdom, he values the kingdom, and so his lust is tied to the kingdom, power lust, and it's tied to the people's giving Saul approval and acceptance, approbation lust. Saul's approach is very different to the one who related to the son of David in the New Testament, whose name was John the Baptist. right? With John the Baptist, in John chapter 30, where... John's disciples came to John the Baptist, and they're saying, hey, all these people are following after that man that, 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 that you baptized and, and that you were speaking about Jesus, and the disciples of John the Baptist are very disturbed about it. You need to do something, John the Baptist. All those people are going over, here, over to him, and, and we're, we're, we're losing. Jesus is attracting all the people, and they're leaving us was the gist of John the Baptist's disciples in John 30. And what, is, what does John the Baptist say? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. This is the plan, was John the Baptist point to his disciples. That's exactly the intent. That's how John the Baptist w- approached the son of David. And here we have King Saul approaching David and the glory that God gave David in an opposite mindset, from a totally opposite perspective. Because for Saul, it's all about Saul. Because Saul approaches life by what he can see and touch and feel, not by faith. He lives by sight and not by faith. Actually, Saul is right. He's right to be mindful about the kingdom because it's already been ordained, it was ordained back in chapter 15 when he disobeyed and he offered the sacrifice when he wasn't supposed to offer the sacrifice, when he overstepped his bounds. When he took that which was not his, the prerogative of the priests, it's the authority of the priests to offer sacrifices, not the king, but God, dis, excuse me, Saul disobeyed, and so God punished him in chapter 15, and God ordained that the kingdom would be taken from him, that the dynasty would be taken from him and then ultimately the kingdom would be taken from him. Saul has an objective here and it is to thwart the will of God in his temerity, in his arrogance, in his pride. He desires to undo the will of God. He desires to undo God's plan and purpose to take the throne from him and to give it to another. And so Saul truly, genuinely, sincerely believes that if he can kill David, he can thwart God's plan. If I can kill David, then David's not going to take the throne. See, sometimes people are very sincere in their beliefs. You have Christians that are very sincere in their beliefs, and sometimes they're just sincerely wrong. And that's what we have here with King Saul. He is sincere and and genuinely believes that he can stop the will of God by eliminating David. Saul's rebellion against God is making him unstable and it's making him conflicted internally. We see this in Saul having David in his own court. I mean, you have to ask yourself, why is David in the court? I mean, why does Saul want David in the court? Is it because Saul loves David, to use the language of chapter 16? Chapter 16 says that Saul loved David greatly. Does Saul want him in the court? Because David plays the harp so well. And when David har- plays the harp, to use the language of chapter 16, he skillfully, he's a skillful musician. And when David would play the harp, Saul would be comforted from the evil spirit that God had sent against him to terrorize him, to use the language of verse, of chapter 16. Does Saul have David in the court because it soothes his spirit in response to the, to the difficulty and, and the, the suffering from the evil spirit that God sent him? Does Saul have David in the court because he loves David? Does Saul have David in the court because David's a winner? Because David's successful, and Saul is hoping that that success will rub off on the other members of the court. Or does Saul have David in the court because he distrusts him? Because he hates him? I mean, that's the language here in verse 9. He's suspicious of him. What's the old saying? Keep Keep your friends close and keep your enemies closer. I mean, which is it? Why does Saul have David in the court? Or is it all of the above? Is it all of those things, just depending on which day it is? It depends on how Saul gets up out of the bed as to how he relates to David. Maybe I love you this day, and maybe I'm suspicious of you this day. Maybe I distrust you this day, and and next day, I love that music that you're playing because it soothes my, my soul. I think that's what we're seeing with Saul, is this internal conflict, this instability, this kind of erratic way of thinking from Saul. In verse 10, it's all going to blow up. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God came mightily upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of the house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. We underestimate God always, always. We underestimate God's power. We underestimate the severity of God's judgment and the severity of God's punishment. God is punishing Saul in a terrible, terrible way. God is removing Saul's mental health. That's why we have a mental health crisis in America today. It is an act of punishment from God. And how is God doing it here? He sends a demon. He sends a demon to terrorize Saul. That's the language of chapter 16. And we're seeing it play out here in chapter 18. Sometimes God uses demonic forces to accomplish his will. And only God can pull this off. One of the ways that it makes my head hurt to think of God is that God can use evil forces without compromising his own holiness. He uses the demons who hate him, who hate good, who hate righteousness. He uses them in his own power, as only God can do, for his will to to fulfill his purposes without compromising his own holiness. This is a God to be feared. This is a God to approach in in awe and wonder. This is a God who we do not understand. What happens here is Saul's jealousy boils over, and he tries to kill David twice. I mean, how absurd is this, You kill the hero. You kill the teenager who killed the giant who gave you, who, who was the spark for the Israelite, Israelite army to have this great victory from the battle there at, at, in the Valley of Elah. You kill him. You kill the one that the, that the nation is rallied around. This is the absurdity of Saul's thinking. Saul desires to kill David here, and this desire will be his life's desire for the rest of his life. This appetite to eliminate David will characterize Saul for the rest of the book. And then finally, David will be anointed, excuse me, will be crowned king in 2 Samuel. But first, God eliminates the one who wants to eliminate David. Or to use the language of 1 John, God takes Saul out by what I believe is the sin unto death after he consults the witch of Endor. And that is at the end of the book of 1 Samuel. But between now and then, that's essentially Saul's role, is to hunt and persecute and try and kill David. What we're seeing is the unfit nature of Saul to reign, his unqualification disqualification to reign. God is showing Israel how absurd the king has become. Keep reading in verse 12. Now Saul was afraid of David, for the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. The king is paranoid. The king is paranoid. This is a product of his approbation lust combined with power lust. He views David as his enemy when David has been totally, completely, Faithful to the king since day one. And the more God protects David, the more it terrifies Saul. The more God protects David, the more it scares Saul. You see the, the internal irrational conflict in Saul's mind, right? On the one hand, Saul knows that God is real and that God is powerful. He doesn't trust God. This is the conflict. He knows that God's real. He knows that God is powerful, and he knows that God has ordained to eliminate him and to eliminate his throne. Saul knows all of that on the one hand. But on the other hand, he lives by sight and not by faith. And so he thinks, if I can eliminate David, the threat to my throne, then I can keep my throne. This creates an internal instability, emotional, erratic attitude and modus operandi of the king, and it characterizes him throughout the rest of the book. Verse 13, therefore Saul removed him, removed David from his presence. Well, make up your mind. Is he part of the court, or is he not part of the court? You want to have him in the court because he's, he soothes you, your soul with the music, and because you love him, and because he's, he's a rock star, and now you run him off because Saul vacillates and flip-flops back and forth. Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. Saul's plan is this. I mean, he's no dummy. He sends David out. I'm not going to kill him, because if Saul kills him, everybody's going to be upset with Saul. I'm going to send him out. I'm going to send him out to lead military assaults on the Philistines, and I'm going to hope for one of two results. I'm going to hope for the Philistines to kill David, then I win because the threat is, is removed, or I'm going to hope for David to lose. Because if David loses, even if he doesn't get killed by the Philistines, if he at least loses battle with the, battle, battles with the Philistines, then he's not going to be as popular. Right? The people are gonna say, oh, okay, David is just like anybody else. He's not this incredibly popular person. So Saul is hoping for one or even both of those results. But the text says David went out and came in. Meaning he goes out to battle and he returns. He doesn't die, but more than not dying, David is Victorious and victorious and victorious. Look at verse 14. David was prospering in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was prospering greatly, he dreaded him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, and he went out and came in before them. David goes in, attacks Philistines, wins, comes back. Goes out, comes back. Goes out, comes back. This is David's regular practice. So Saul's plan backfires on him. The Lord continues to prosper, David, and the people start to love David even more and more. It's a total opposite result of what Saul was hoping for. And all of this, all of this intensifies Saul's fear of David. So what does he do? He repents, cries out to God, and recognizes his wrongdoing. He just turns up the volume on his plot to kill David. Keep reading in verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as, my, as a wife. Only be a valiant man for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, My hand shall not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Saul is not only erratic, and unstable, but he's a liar. He's one who reneges on his promise. Because you remember the promise from chapter 17. The promise was, whoever goes up against the giant, I'm going to give you riches, and I'm also going to give you my daughter. Because that, that, that'd be a great thing to have, because then if you marry the daughter of a king, then in effect you become a prince, and, and, and you're, you have this great position in the king's household. And that's why Saul made the promise, because no one wanted to fight Goliath. And there weren't any conditions other than you kill the giant. That's the only condition. But here, Saul comes in and says, well, I want to retrade the deal. Yeah, I know you killed the giant, but I have another condition for you, David, for you to get to, to marry my daughter. The, the other condition that I have is that you go out and fight more battles, an unspecified number of battles against the Philistine we're on verse 18 but David said to Saul who am i and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that i should be the king's son-in-law in other words i, I don't have the dowry you know you, you, there were big dowries back then where you would pay the the where the, the family of the groom would pay the father of the bride. Well, David's a shepherd, and he, he comes from a family of shepherds. His father is a shepherd. This is not a wealthy family. And so David is saying, look, I, I don't have a, a, a big dowry to pay for a daughter of a king. Keep reading in verse 19. So it came about at that time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Micholathite, for a wife. Saul, again, is not a man of his word. Saul is not a man to be trusted. This is what you're seeing here where he reneged on the deal. Verse 20, now Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David. This is the second child of Saul, who loves David. Everybody loves David, except for Saul, except for the king. Verse 20 goes on, When they told Saul, the thing was agreeable to him. Saul thought, I will give her to him, that she may become a snare to him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. I don't think I can overstate this by saying this is a horrible father. Right, he's wants his daughter to be a trap. He finds out my daughter loves David. He says, "Oh man, I'm going to weaponize that. I'm going to weaponize her love for David. I'm going to leverage that to have that her attraction to David, and and in a moment we're going to see David will will marry her, and." Saul is going to use his daughter's love for David to try and pull David in, to try and get David exposed to more military conflicts with the Philistines. And he isn't looking out for his daughter at all. He doesn't care about his daughter. He cares about killing David. Keep reading in verse 21. Therefore, Saul said to David, For a second time you may be my son-in-law today. Then Saul commanded his servants, speak to David secretly, saying, Behold, the king delights in you, and all his servants love you. Now therefore become the king's son-in-law. This is just total deception, right? I mean, the king delights in you? No, the king wants to kill you. The king hates you. And what Saul is trying to do is, is draw David in through deception. Verse 23, so Saul's servants spoke these words to David. But David said, is it trivial in your sight to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and lightly esteemed? David is humble. He knows his position. He knows that his position is a low position, and that doesn't trouble him at all. God has put him in a low position, in a humble position, and he's not disturbed at all by that. He acknowledges it. He says, look, I'm not... Not worthy to to, to, to marry a, a king's daughter? And they certainly don't have a dowry, which is what would be required. So the king says, I got a fix. I got a solution to that. Verse 24. The servants of Saul reported to him according to these words which David spoke. Saul then said, Thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. Now Saul planned to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. Saul is committed and determined to get David killed by the hand of the Philistines. And you see it over and over and over. Now the sad thing is that David will learn this trick himself. And in 2 Samuel, when he engages in adultery with Bathsheba and her husband. He calls her husband back, Uriah the Hittite, and then he sends Uriah the Hittite out in battle, hoping that Uriah is going to get killed in battle. And in fact, he does in 2 Samuel. We'll see that when we get there. David learned the trick from Saul. And at that time in 2 Samuel, David is in total sin, total rebellion against God. But here we see Saul doing that. Saul comes up with a new type of dowry. He comes up with a really gross type of dowry. It's kind of like the way the Indians in North America would scalp people as their trophies and then... We learned that trick from them and we did it to them. Well, Saul's trophy here that he's looking for are the foreskins of dead soldiers. And so he tells David, you go get a hundred foreskins of the Philistines because the Philistines are not circumcised like the Israelites. Verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Before the days had expired, I think that's telling us, that Saul gave him a clock. You have X number of days to go out and get, kill 100 Philistines, 100 Philistines, and come back and, and give me evidence of it. You have X number of days to do it. And so, before that time period, those days had expired. Keep reading in verse 27 David rose up and went, he and his men, and struck down 200 men from among the Philistines. So, David meets the time requirement and the quantity requirement, except he doubles the quantity. He doubles, he, he, he fulfills it times two. He goes from 100 to 200. Keep reading in verse 27. Then David brought their foreskins, and they gave them in full number to the king. I'm not going to get into details there, but he gave him a full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. So Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, for a wife. When Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, then Saul was even more afraid of David. Thus, Saul was David's enemy continually. Again, Saul's scheme once again backfired. What's happened now is that part of Saul's family is now wedded to the enemy. Now, David's not his enemy, but Saul perceives him as his enemy. He shouldn't, but he does. Saul views David as his enemy because God is with David. That's why Saul hates David, because Saul because David is being propped up by the Lord, elevated by the Lord. The more that God prospers David, the more it scares Saul. Saul is opposed to God and opposed to God's servants. And then finally, we get to verse 30. Then the commanders of the Philistines went out to battle and it happened as often as they went out that David behaved himself more wisely than all the servants of Saul. So his name was highly esteemed. What's happened in chapter 18 is that God has contrasted David with Saul. God's given us a contrast between God's pick and, David's, and, and the people's pick for king. Saul has shown himself as jealous, unstable, and fearful, where David is steadfast, reliable, and successful. Everybody loves David, except for Saul. God is with David, and God is against Saul. God prospers David over and over, and that's because David seeks God's will. He's a man after the Lord's own heart. And God prospers David because David is humble. This is a simple formula. It's a simple formula to be blessed by God. Simple. By seeking God's will and by humbling ourselves is a great lesson for us. In our pride, in our stubbornness, we make it complicated, but it's actually a very simple formula that the scripture lays out, and we see it here very clearly with God's servant, David. We'll see more of him next time. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you that you have recorded it for us. We ask that you help us follow the pattern of young David in obedience to you. We ask that you help us seek your will and seek to honor you and seek to give you all the glory, and we ask that you bless us. We ask that you provide for us. We recognize that your blessing escapes us if we rebel against you if we disobey you. So we ask that you challenge us to obey you and bring honor to your name. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.